All right, welcome back to Forgotten Lakers. We're here today with Spiro Didis. Um, Spiro was the Lakers radio play-by-play announcer from the 05-06 season until the 2010-2011 season. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, Jeff. Good to be with you. Well, thank you. Uh, like I said, when we were getting started. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. You'll be the second non-player I've talked to uh, for this podcast. I've targeted a few other, you know, central Laker figures, uh, but you and Andy Bernstein are the first two who have actually said yes, so I really appreciate that. Um, Andy's a tough act to follow. One of my favorite guys in the Laker world, so yeah, he was I'll do great. my best. <laughs> I really enjoy listening to his podcast, uh, Legends of Sport. Uh, he's got a weekly one that he's doing right now, and um, he talks to you know, former Lakers, other athletes, just other people in entertainment. So for anyone listening out there, check out Andy's podcast too, Legends of Sport. But uh, to go ahead and get started – can we? Can you just briefly go into you know your history with broadcasting? What when you really got into it, and uh, when did you realize that you probably had a future in it? Well, I think similar to a lot of guys in the business, I got the broadcasting bug very young. Uh, I was probably you know very early in my teenage years when I uh, just kind of developed a fascination for the announcers during the games that I would watch on TV and on radio. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in the car, so, you know, listening to guys like Mike Breen, uh, where I grew up in, in North New Jersey, mm-hmm. were a huge influence on me. And, uh, you know, I came, I grew up in a Greek-American family, uh, first-generation Greek-American. Uh, parents were Greek immigrants. Uh, my father owned a diner in uh, in New Jersey, you know, so I had that kind of Greek-American life growing up where, you know, we, we kind of grew up working at the diner on the weekends and... Mm-hmm. Uh, just in that world, so it was kind of assumed in my family that me and my brother would eventually take over the business. But uh, you know, once I became enthralled with with broadcasting and and, and sports, I, I remember just kind of getting into it and telling my my pop and my parents that it was something that um, I dreamed of doing as a career. And you know, initially they were they were not. Uh, you know, my mother was always kind of the loving supporter, but my father was always the uh, the disciplinarian and pragmatist so he tried to talk me out of it but uh (laughs) eventually i guess i kind of won him over at that time when you were you know just really falling in love with the idea of being a broadcaster were you targeting basketball or a different sport yeah basketball was my was always my first love um you know i grew up playing hoops from uh from the time i was really young the first sport that i played and you know while i kind of dabbled in the other sports baseball and soccer and, and played football uh, in high school, basketball was for sure it was my first love, and you know, I grew up a diehard Knicks fan, and you know, always admired the NBA. You know, even the teams that were out of you know my area where I grew up, and uh, you know, the Celtics and the Lakers and the great franchises. I was just all kind of encompassed uh, in terms of the NBA, and uh, you know, so to kind of end up where I did was, uh, you know, was even more surreal. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, just doing a little bit of research for this. I know you did, I guess it was like a, was it for the Nets that you did some games before you got the Lakers job? Yeah, the Nets was my first NBA gig, kind of as a backup to uh, to Ian Eagle. Uh, I had been hired by Yes Network by John Filippelli to do some of their Ivy League uh, sports. They had a, a package of, of Ivy League football and basketball, so I was kind of their guy doing that. And then Ian, you know, having the 27 jobs that he had, you know, obviously needed a backup on uh, on some of the Nets telecasts that he missed. So, you know, it was kind of the first of many times of being, uh, you know, in the right place at the right time. And 
John Filippelli and uh, Woody Fryman, who was uh, John's number two at Yes Network, you know, entrusted me with, with that gig. And so I did my first Nets game, uh, I think, at, at the age of 23, which was which was pretty awesome. It was a Nets-Wizards game in D.C. when Michael Jordan had come back from retirement. So it was, it was pretty it was pretty incredible. Wow. So your very first game, you get to do a Jordan game. Um, I remember yeah. <laughs> his Wizards stint playing a uh, game against the Nets. Was this a preseason game or was it a regular season game? No, it was a regular season. Regular season, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, I worked the game with Kelly Trapuca that night in D.C. Uh, oh, cool. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Kelly Trapuca. Um, so what was the process that uh, led you getting the Lakers job a few seasons later? Well, um, you know, at the time I was working for Yes. I was also working on the side at uh, NBA TV, hosting some studio shows. And um, I had read in the papers in New York, I can't remember if it was the Post or the Daily News, that uh, the Lakers were shuffling their broadcast uh, division. Paul Sunderland was not going to be coming back on TV, so they were going to move Joel Myers uh, from their radio play-by-play position to TV and that there was going to be an opening on the radio side. So, you know, at the time I'm 20, you know, 25, I believe. Um, I remember calling my agent at the time, uh, someone named John Cirillo, who is a very well-known guy in PR circles in New York. Um, John had been helping me, uh, kind of as my agent those first couple of years. And he basically started my career, um, was, was, really a huge influence for me and a big supporter of me. And I remember calling John and telling him, look, you know, we both kind of agree that I, I likely didn't have a shot at this job, but, you know, let's send my tape out, you know, let's get my name in the mix and it can't hurt, you know? So mm-hmm. we kind of, we sent a little demo reel. I remember going to the FedEx station and sending it out with uh, with a letter and um, not hearing anything for probably a month. And so, you know, out of sight, out of mind, you know, I figured it was just kind of sitting on someone's desk or in someone's trash can. Uh Um, But I got a call about a month and a half later from uh, Don Martin, who was the uh, the general manager and still is the GM at uh, KLAC, which was, of course, the Lakers' longtime flagship station, you know, all those years that uh, the chick was around with the simulcast. And uh, Don – you know, this Midwestern guy with his, with his accent, you know, said, Hey, you know, we, we heard your tape and we're, we're interested in bringing you in for an interview. And, and that just kind of started this whole whirlwind process that, uh, you know, was pretty euphoric at the time, just to be, you know, just to get a call back from, from someone in Los Angeles, you know, who was going to be a a decision maker and then, you know, piling their next radio announcer was pretty awesome. Cool. Did you uh, send in that Nets game or any of your Nets games as your audition, or was it something else? You know, because it was radio, you know, oh, we, we yeah. didn't feel like anything TV-wise was, um, you know, was going to be relevant. So what we did, I, luckily, I had done a Westwood One game as a fill-in uh, a couple of months earlier. So I basically just cut up that entire game with some highlights in the beginning and you know, some longer clips of play-by-play, and that basically was was the only reel I had because I really didn't have anything else that was uh, that was recent on the radio. So it was just just a very brief little radio reel, and and that was enough, I guess, to uh, to get my name in the mix. Amazingly. Wow, <laughs> uh, that's incredible. Do you remember what you were doing when you found out you officially got the job? Yeah, of course. My God, it was uh, it was one of the one of those moments you never forget. I, I was actually at the finals in uh, 2005, uh, the end of the 0405 season. Um, and I was with a bunch of 
colleagues at NBA TV who had uh, asked me to go join them to play around at golf. Um, I'm not a golf guy, uh, rarely play. So, you know, I kind of begrudgingly went, you know, it was a chance to kind of hang and maybe have a couple of beers and, you know, sit in the golf cart and hang out. Um, And I got the call. I think we were on the second or third tee. I got a call from my agent and said, uh, John said, we, we got a call, we got an offer. Um, uh, he told me what the details were and he said, listen, he said, you know, you can't tell anyone until they announce it. You know, you can't oh, yeah. even tell whoever you're with right now. So I, I, for the next, you know, 15, 16 holes, I, I had to keep this, you know, the biggest <laughs> secret, the biggest news I had that, you know, ever. And I mean, I can't even describe the feeling of euphoria that I had for those next couple of hours. I don't, I, I didn't, Hit, you know, hit another golf ball. I just basically drove the cart. I think smoked like two cigars and and had a couple extra beers. And um, you know, I just was like a whirlwind in my mind of how my life was about to change. Oh my gosh, that's incredible! So when you finally could, so like, how long was it before you could tell anybody? Uh, I th- you know, I think it was a couple of days. I, you know, I definitely told my family. Obviously, I told okay, my parents. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, my girlfriend at the time and, you know, everyone was just, they, they knew how emotionally invested I was in that process. You know, once I knew that I was among the finalists, I, if I didn't get the job, even though it was a long shot from the beginning, but once I knew I was in the mix, you know, I, I would have, it would have been just crushing. So, mm-hmm. you know, once they heard that it finally happened, they knew how, you know, big a moment it was for me in my career, in my life, you know, everyone was just super happy and kind of shared in that moment, which, which kind of made it even more special. So I was thinking about this. Yeah, I read that you got the job when you were, you know, I guess 26 or so. And, uh, you know, there are guys who are probably doing this for 20, 30, maybe even longer years who would, you know, kill for an opportunity like that. Did you sense any kind of friction from people in the industry that you got the job so young? Or, or was it like kind of a mixture of both of everyone's really happy for you, but maybe like some subtle facial expressions you're getting or anything like that about your age? Yeah, you know, I, I think 99% of the people who I came in contact with um, were very, very supportive and and nice and welcoming and and everything you'd want. I mean, uh, you know, I think, you know, and, and looking back on this now, you're right. I mean, there's there are so many hundreds and hundreds of people um, in this business that are more talented than me, better than me, more deserving than me, who never get a shot, who never get a shot close to working at that level. And so I totally could understand, uh, you know, some of the feelings of, well, you know, who is this kid? Why does he deserve this shot uh, of how that would probably cross someone's mind who had paid their dues and been in this business for, for however many number of years. So, you know, I, w- I was prepared for that. I, I never kind of begrudged anyone for that. I, I can't say it was super prevalent, but, you know, I'd also be lying if I didn't get that sense from certain people. Um, And also, you know, the other part was, you know, coming into a, a world in the Lakers who had obviously had chick for so many years. And there was a level here of, of greatness, you know, in terms of, of someone who had occupied that seat and it was basically royalty, uh, you know, people that supported him, obviously it'd been a couple of years since he had passed, but I think there was still kind of a, a hangover from that. And so I think, you know, unfortunately, Paul Sunderland bore, bore the brunt of that. And, you know, a couple of years later, you know, here comes this, this you know, 26-year-old kid who's going to do the radio, you know, does he deserve it? So there, it was kind of a lot of things that were intimidating for me stepping into that world. But, 
you know, it's like anything else. You just have to do your best and be true to who you are. And, you know, I look at a kid like Joe Davis, who's followed Vin here in LA. And I just, mm-hmm. I couldn't be happier, more proud of someone who's, you know, kind of, you know, obviously younger than me, but, you know, a part of the younger generation of announcers who has really, you know, uh, performed just so incredibly well and following the legend the way he did. I just think that's, that's pretty incredible to do in, in a market like this. Yeah, definitely. So you come in 0506 season, uh, you know, the, it was kind of a, another year of transition. Phil Jackson had taken the one year hiatus the previous year was now back as the coach uh, They kind of had a revamped roster. Obviously Kobe was there, but they traded, you know, Karan Butler from the previous year for Kwame Brown and, you know, Smush Parker came in. This is be Lamar Odom's second year. You know, just individually, probably Kobe's greatest season, at least statistically. Uh, so you mm-hmm. kind of had, a, you know, a front row seat to some of the greatest performances, scoring performances in NBA history. Obviously, the 81-point game, the 62 and three quarters versus Dallas. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so what was <laughs> in your first full season as a – the broadcaster for the Lakers getting to see that every night. Can you even attempt to put into words what that was like? Well, you know, the the fact that my first year was the year that Phil came back, you know, here, here, you know, you have to understand, I grew up, um, you know, in the eighties, early nineties, you know, that era of the NBA. So Phil Jackson obviously was, you know, one of the iconic presences in the sport, you know, for me and one of the, you know, watching as a kid on, on, you know, the weekends and all the big games on NBC. And, you know, here I am a couple of years later, my first kind of big frontline job. And, you know, there's Phil Jackson on the team playing. Uh, there's Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, in the locker room walking by me. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it's, it sounds cliche and I'm going to repeat myself, but surreal is just the only word I can describe. So, you know, it was just hard for me to kind of contain all the emotions of excitement and, you know, my God, what am I doing here? And <laughs> and then at the end of the day, kind of bottling all up and, and you have to, you know, you're, you're announcing, you're the chronicler of this team, you know, this great franchise with the legacy of Chick and, you know, you want to be true to that and do the best job you can. So it was, it was daunting. It was intimidating. It was exciting. You know, it was exhilarating. And um, I mean, that first year, my God, it, it was incredible, you know, to see what Kobe did. Um, you know, to see the whole thing, just to be at Staples for some of those big moments, to hear that noise of that building when the Lakers are are going the way they are. And, you know, they had still yet to get back, I think, to the championship level, but you, there was still an excitement in the air. Um, Kobe challenged you as an announcer every night in ways that, you know, are still kind of hard to top in terms of some of the other things that I've done, just not knowing what this guy was capable of on the night in the night out basis. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just, you know, all of the above. My God, it was, uh, it was incredible. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, as a fan watching those games, um, it, it truly was an incredible experience that 0506 year, and even the subsequent years where, you know, you the next year, or I guess your first two years, but you know, back to back first round losses against the Suns, then the trade for Pau Gasol, these are those three straight finals runs, culminating in two championships. You know, I think it's so cool with those, uh, you know, I have all those championship DVDs, like from 09 to 2010. And for the longest time, I was always wondering, like, whose voice that was on there, like when they're doing all the play-by-play of all the highlights. because so I was like, well, it's definitely not Mike Breen. These are finals games, and it's not, you know, Bill McDonald or, or no, I guess yeah. it would have been Joel Myers back then. 
Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it turns out it was you. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you know, I think you were echoing the sentiments of a lot of people. Like, who is this guy? Oh, this young kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I mean, uh, yeah, I've I'd always heard your voice on those highlights, but I just it never I didn't know who it was. Like, because I was just saying it wasn't like the you know the ABC broadcast or anything. Yeah. Well, I think I think the cool part about being the radio announcer for a team like the Lakers, you know, beyond the fact that you're working for, you know, one of the flagship stations of the sport and then this prestigious organization that's won so many titles and has had all the success is that, A, you know, once you get into the postseason, and this is the same for every team in the NBA, they use your highlights. You know, obviously it goes to the national broadcasters, but in terms of you know, the local team in the arena, you become the chronicler, you know, unfortunately for the TV crew, they go away. The local TV guys do. And and it was Michael, it was Michael Thompson and I who had the, you know, the, the opportunity to call those late postseason series and obviously into the NBA finals. And that was incredible in and of itself. I wanted to ask you about your last season in LA, the 2010-2011 season. You know, I guess, no, towards the end of that year, they had had a pretty strong second half of the year. I know they tailed off heading into the playoffs. I don't remember what it was. They might have lost like seven of their last ten or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, did you kind of have a sense, just as you know, the play-by-play guy seeing them every night, that they more than likely weren't going to three-peat, and you thought it was just a matter of time that before they fell off, or did you think they had a shot going into those playoffs? Yeah, I think there was a there was a sense that whole season that the group was tired because you also have to remember they had been to the finals the year before when they had lost to Boston in, in 2008. So yeah. to, to expect them to go to a, to a finals for a fourth straight year, I think was asking a lot. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, as we had seen with Kobe and with Phil, uh, after a couple of years together, there was, there was a sense of fatigue. I mean, obviously there was a lot of water under the bridge and, and things that had been sent over the years, but with that team specifically that year, you, you did get the sense, especially the way they ended the regular season that you mentioned. Um, and I think going into that postseason, there was a feeling like this team was just barely holding on. And uh, yeah. and and there there was there was a sense that we were kind of seeing the end of that that second run uh, led by Phil and Kobe and that in that particular group. So, you know, for me, I remember going to that series and just kind of taking stock into what we were seeing, you know, just for me personally to be, to have the privilege of, of calling these games and being around this group that had, you know, won back-to-back titles and had been to the finals three straight years, like really just enjoy this moment. It's probably going to end. Um, and just appreciate this position that you're in because, you know, luckily I've, I've had a lot of great mentors in this business and I remember them all telling me at that point, man, you know, just enjoy this moment, you know, because, you could do this for another 30, 40 years, and you, your team may never get to a finals. You may never get a chance to to call a championship series. So I really, honest to God, at that point, really did my best to appreciate the moment and kind of take stock in where I was at that point in my career. Another question I had, I, after Joel Myers left, he went to the Hornets, or I guess they were the Pelicans by then, maybe still the Hornets. I don't know. He went to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would watch a lot of those games on League Pass when the Lakers would play New Orleans. And it was interesting hearing his voice doing the Pelicans, but it always seemed not, I don't want to say he was like rooting for the Lakers in any way, but that uh, (laughs) he he was like, you know, happy when they were doing well or happy if Kobe was doing a big game, he had like a little excitement in his voice. So when you went to the Knicks job and did Knicks Lakers games, was it, was that weird for you or were you kind of 
secretly rooting for the Lakers in any way. <laughs> well, it, first of all, the first time going back to Staples was very, very weird, you know, very bizarre. It was, you know, definitely bittersweet. Um, uh-huh. I never had wanted to leave and then obviously left and, you know, it was like leaving kind of a, a family member after so many years because, you know, when you work for a team, it's different than when you work for a network, you know, where you, mm-hmm. you kind of feel like a hired gun. You know, you they send you to a different team in a different city and a different matchup every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you work for a team, you're you're really emotionally invested. I mean, you, you get to know the guys, you, you're on the road with them, you know, you, you develop relationships. Uh, you never let that get in the way of what your job is, and that's obviously to be kind of a – an unbiased announcer during the games, but that doesn't mean that you're not rooting for them to win. Yeah. Um, and I remember going back to Staples and seeing everyone and everyone was just so supportive and nice and kind of welcomed me back. And I remember, you know, right before tip Kobe kind of, you know, just after their starter starting lineups had been announced, taking his shirt off and at the scores table, you know, putting their, the resin on his hands and he kind of looked over at the end of the table and he kind of saw me at the corner of his eye and he just kind of gave me a look like, man, what the hell were you thinking leaving here? You know, oh, it's yeah. like this awesome scene. And I kind of like chuckled at him and it was kind of this cool little neat moment. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it was, it was very strange going back, but you know, one thing we have to do as announcers is you have to stay unbiased and, you know, no matter what you're feeling inside, you got to call the game and can call things straight down the line. Well, I have one last question for you. I like to end each episode with, you know, former players or whoever I'm talking to with a little Laker trivia question. So I'm looking at the complete roster for the 0506 Lakers, your first season broadcasting uh, games for the Los Angeles. There are 17 players who played at least one regular season game with the Lakers that year. How many can you name? Oh, man. Um, let's see. So 2004, two, 2005, 2006. Uh, all right, well, Kobe, Lamar, Devin George, I'm going to say, was on that first team. Yep, he was. Do you want coaches? <laughs> Derek <laughs> Fisher, obviously. <laughs> he was not. Derek Fisher. He, he oh, was Derek not Fisher, on the – That's right, he was still, he was still with uh, – I think he was on the Warriors. With, with Golden State. Uh, Chris Mim. Yep. He's a guy I cannot find anywhere for the episode. He just doesn't exist on social media. God, who was their front line? Kwame Brown. Yep. Aaron McKee. Good one. One of the one of the nicer guys that I remember from that first year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Smush Parker, my Fordham connection. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Having him on the team was pretty pretty surreal. We uh we had overlapped one year at Fordham, so that was kind of cool. Oh, cool. He and I have gone back and forth about trying to set up a, an episode, so I still got to get him, but he's at least responsive. You'll get him. Yeah. He's a little elusive. Um, Andrew Bynum, who was in the office signing his contract the day that I went in. Uh, oh, yeah. So Andrew was there. I think we always had a pretty cool connection, another Jersey guy. Uh, Sasha Vujicic, who kind of became a, a – a friend of mine and obviously being around the same age was always kind of cool. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone I can actually relate to in terms of being a contemporary. Um, man, I'm at a loss at the who else was on that team. Jim Jackson. I think Jim Jackson yeah. was there my first year. Was it second? Jim Jackson. Yeah, he was. Um, hmm. How many is that? You got 10. So you're missing seven. 
I'm trying to think who the Lakers drafted their second round pick that year. Oh, Von, Von Wafer. Was yep, Von on that 05 team? He was, yeah. I did an episode with him. We've kept in touch a little bit. He's a really nice guy. He was one of four rookies they had that year. Well, you've already yeah, you mentioned okay. him and Bynum. So there's two other rookies. I mentioned Luke, right? Um, you did not. So I got. I'll get him down now. Okay. Can't forget Luke. God, I may be done. <laughs> You're missing five. Hmm. Oh boy. Um. Oh, Devin George. Did I mention Devin? Yeah, you did mention Devin George. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I think I may be done. Okay, I can give you the rest if you're if you're ready to throw in the towel. Um. Uh. Sure. Go ahead. All right. Well, first one, another friend of the podcast, Brian Cook. Hmm. Um, then we have, yeah, Cook. yeah. Uh, did an episode with him a while back. Um. Then we got another friend of the podcast, Devin Green. Hmm. Yeah, uh, he didn't play too much. Yeah. No. Another great guy. Yeah, he was really nice. I've enjoyed I enjoyed talking to him. Um, and then the guy they cut right before they signed Jim Jackson, if you want to take a guess now. The guy they cut before Jim Jackson? Yeah, they cut him to sign Jim Jackson. Mm. Younger guy? Uh, he had been in the league at that point, gosh, six years, maybe seven years. Uh, international player. Um, no, uh, Slava Medvedenko. Yep, Slava Medvedenko. Mm. And then the last one, um, ooh, you'll, uh, this will be a hint that we'll get it. Uh, the, the night Kobe scored 62 for Dallas, he subbed in for him and tore his Achilles. Subbed in for him that night and tore his Achilles. Yeah. My God, I should know this. Um, so bench guy, end of the bench guy. Yep. Uh, oh, uh, Laurent Profit. Laurent Profit, yep. And then, uh, the last one, Roni Turioff. Mm, terrible. <laughs> Roni was one of my favorites. Yeah, he's, um, I haven't gotten a response out of him, but I've, uh, you know, sent him a couple messages, so hopefully I'll get him down the road. I'm sure you will. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Spiro. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, it was cool getting to hear a little bit about your broadcast history and obviously your time in L.A. So best of luck with you know this upcoming season with the NFL and um, whatever NBA and college basketball you get to do. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure.